Hi, this is Christy of Brown Girls Booking. As a reminder, we upload every other Wednesday or every other week or bi weekly. We want to thank you for listening, and if you love the show, please follow our social media. We can be found at Brown Girls Booking on Instagram and Brown Girls Booking on Facebook. We also have a Patreon, and your support as subscribers helps us with our production costs, which we appreciate. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Dee Dee. And I'm Christy, and we're Brown Girls Booking. And this is the show from two readers looking for known and unknown narratives in familiar and unfamiliar spaces. We're two girls reading literary fiction widely. If there's a topic or theme that's been written about, then it's a topic or theme we want to talk about. And today, we are talking about The Big Sleep, written in 1939 by Raymond Chandler. Dee Dee, this book... I've had so many people tell me, what? You haven't read Raymond Chandler? What? You haven't read Raymond Chandler? So when you suggested this one, I was like, okay, it's something that, you know, we need to do. And I was taken aback at how well done this whole storyline is. And keeping in mind, I don't know if you know, but this was Raymond Chandler's first book, The Big Sleep. And Uh, and he was 44 (laughs) years old. All right, Raymond Chandler. I'm about that life. 44 years old. So I chose this book because I don't read mystery. I definitely don't read anything that might be considered hard-boiled or pulp. I don't know that I would have willingly picked this up if somebody had given me a multiplicity of choices of books from the decade of the 1930s. And so for all of those reasons, I said to myself, we're going to read this book because that's the way that you expand your horizons. And also the form, the form of of what goes into a hard-boiled detective. Detective novel. Novel. I found myself constantly amazed at my willingness to keep reading, even when I felt I knew what was going to happen next. And I think it's because the dialogue is really snappy. The the pacing is really good. Just the storyline itself is not complex. No. It just shows how what he's focusing on is the psychology of the various different characters that Marlowe meets. Right. And we're seeing how Marlowe judges the people that he meets. And I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about the way it's constructed. It's constructed with a main character who's slightly flawed. Yes. And he is very gung-ho about what he does. Doesn't try to paint himself as something that he isn't. No. You know? He's on the up and up. When I was reading it, I couldn't help but think about Easy Rollins from um, Walter Mosley. Because- so I've never read an Easy Rollins book. And I've only watched Devil in the Blue Dress. But what I did think about as somebody who doesn't read a lot of detective novels is the ways in which this book clearly influenced not only detective novels, but also psychological thrillers. Because who I have read a fair amount of is Tana French. Okay. I don't think Tana French. So I don't think people would put Tana French next to Raymond Chan. But you can't not see somewhere along the lineage of psychological thriller and mystery that Raymond Chandler Mm. didn't influence the type of work Tana French is doing, especially that psychosis and analysis that a detective does 
when walking into a room and trying to suss out whomever it is yeah. that they're speaking to. Yeah. That is like all over her books. This is the beginning, though, of what we know as a detective novel. I mean, we can always fault it as, does it really hold up today? It holds up today because it's pretty much the blueprint for a detective novel. Right. And it seems to be a bit dated because the language is hilarious. Yeah. It's very yeah. much of its time. It's so funny. I mean, when it was just like, who had the look of a young Jewess? I was like, right. what? Wow. The one that got me was the perfume of orchids has a rotten sweetness of a prostitute. <laughs> so just for a high level overview, this book, The Big Sleep, follows our detective who has been hired by an old, rich Hollywood family, the patriarch of the family, to do some sleuthing about a letter that he got that is blackmailing the family in relation to the patriarch's youngest daughter. So the story unfolds related to the blackmailing of the youngest daughter, Carmen. Mm -hmm. And of course, there is more. Well, it's like he goes off to find this blackmailer and he gets hooked into something else. It isn't done on purpose. And this is what made me think about Easy Rollins because it's sort of a similar situation. Easy Rollins isn't even really a detective. He gets thrown into being a detective. And the fact that Marlo gets thrown into this much bigger incident is the thing that makes him go on a small journey that makes a very good detective story. It's full of red herrings everywhere. You know, is this the blackmailer? Is that the blackmailer? And it keeps us occupied because I have to admit, I read this really quickly. Me too. It's about 165 pages. It's very engrossing. You know, yeah, I tend to be a character driven reader of anything. That's why I love short stories so much. But the plot moved at such a fast, clip. yeah, fast pace. And then what underpinned it and really pulled me through was that Marlowe spent so much time thinking of the psychosis and the psychology of whomever he was interacting with. It was like I got many dips into characterization. And so I was just like, oh, I'm totally willing to go along with this plot because who who are you going to meet next that you're going to analyze that's going to give me something to chew on as a reader that I like to think about with him I was just like I was getting these petty force for, for lack of a better term mm-hmm. of characters that just kept me ever so satisfied because they were all relevant, of course, to the plot. The way that the mechanics of the novel worked, where the plot is what drives the novel and then the characters are secondary, I found it very satisfying. Yeah, and I think that's also because Raymond Chandler also did a lot of screenplay writing. I did not know that. All of his stories have been adapted into film at least one time. I can see that. The dialogue, the dialogue. The dialogue alone is quite good. Especially when it's it's Marlowe and a woman. <laughs> the dialogue. Okay. Hilarious. For those of you listening out there, I will say if you are gonna read this. This book reads of its time, which means that the banter back and forth between Marlowe and the women would not stand today. He definitely has views on women that are through a patriarchal lens. Yeah, absolutely. That being said, the witty repartee is abound in this novel. The older daughter is also a pretty big player in the book. And every time she and Marlowe are on the page together... I leaned in. When she said, you brood of a man, I could throw a Buick at you. I was like, let's think about everything 
about that line and the symbolism. Laughed so hard when I read that one. I just thought, oh wow. Didi, I promise you, I will find a way to insert. I could throw a Buick at you in something. You. There's no way I can't let it go. It's too good. It's oh, too good. The phrases are like remarkable. It was also dropping down to look see. That's okay, like very of its time. Now I like that because look see, look see is something that we say in the Bahamas. I was very interested in the vernacular and the ways in which vernacular in that time carried over. I think he has double nationality, Raymond Chandler. He's British. Yeah, he's British. I know he's American. So that's probably why some of the expressions are a little bit of both. And I feel like even down to each minor character, which are nothing more than an example of something from the time period that the book is taking place in. When he was talking about the character of Camino, I was referring to Camino as everything brown. Yes. Brown shoes, brown socks. Yes. Brown pants, brown, brown jacket, brown car. He literally called him the brown man. And then this whole thing around this young man, uh, Rusty Reagan, yes. who was married to Vivian. And who was a bootlegger. And who was a bootlegger, but who the general kind of respected him. So this is the, the first daughter of the old man who hires Marlowe, has a husband who at the beginning of the novel, we find out has flown the coop. And he has not told anyone, like he hasn't left any note or anything. So and he is not the reason why the general calls in Marlowe. So everything is turning a- around him, finding the blackmailer, but also it's like every time he meets a new person, they say, oh, you want to know where Rusty Reagan is? Yeah, yeah. Like, Did I say I was looking for him? Should yeah. I be looking for him? So he can immediately see that some details have been left out of this narrative of trying to find so-called the blackmailer. There's more to it than the general has actually said to him. As you're reading, you're going to find every chapter you hit a new character. Yes, um, yes. That and then the fact that when a body drops information somehow drops along. Yeah. Yeah. I think this was the thing that had me being like, this is an imperfect book because the right or wrong thing keeps happening at the right time. Yeah, exactly. Which I typically would resist in a book, but it just has to be that way. That's just the way that the detective novel is set up. And so as a reader, I get on board with it or I, I don't. Right. But what is true is that's literally how an investigation moves along. Yes, it does. You can only react and take information away from what you see happen, which means you have to be the kind of person who can look at someone and say, she's lying. She's not telling me the truth. Right. Or, okay. I get that information that you're giving me. And then if you don't want to give away that information, that's what we see. Marlo is very smart. He knows what to give away to what person. He can suss out what that person is going to be like just simply by the way they dress, the way they look the way they act. And you can tell in the descriptions that Raymond Chandler does, it's like we're the fly on Marlowe's shoulder. Yeah, it's very panoramic. Like to adapt these into film is nothing because the descriptions are so detailed. That would be the only thing that I would say lends itself to screenwriting, but doesn't always lend itself to novel writing. Novel writing, yeah. If it was a longer book, I would have gotten mired in all of the descriptions. Oh, absolutely. But because 
because it was so short, it was something that I found I didn't have a problem with. But in general, I just would say there's a lot to be learned oh, and gained from it, reading this novel, which is what I'm finding of all of the novels that we've read so far. Yeah, we've learned a lot from the craft standpoint. We've learned quite a lot. Now, could this just be because we're reading a lot of classics and classic novels have a tendency to teach a lot of things that as readers of today, we're not necessarily looking at because the newer novels do not present some of these characteristics. Um, Maybe I'm being presumptuous in saying that, but the classics that we have read so far, I'm finding some real concrete things in these novels that Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily seeing in some of the newer novels that are coming out today. What I'm finding is in reading all of these classics, I'm starting to fill in blanks Mm-hmm. of the lineage of where more modern novels I've read come from. Mm-hmm. And that's important for me as a reader and as a writer, because if I read a novel that was written in 1999, mm-hmm. let's say, and I've just come into the page and I'm like, this is a great novel. And I don't understand that the scaffolding and the framework of this novel was based on something that is a classic that was written 60 to 100 years earlier. That's a gap missing in my education about how that novel was built. Yeah, And so what I find is in reading these novels, I'm getting this double joy of filling in foundational knowledge that I wasn't trained with because I have a master's in fine arts, but I don't have a degree in English literature. And my foundational educational background is actually in business and finance. And so I'm like, oh, this farcical dialogue that I love in this 2005 book is in the same school. Mm-hmm. of dialogue written a hundred years ago and then my curiosity is sparked and I'm like so how far back does this go and as a writer now that means I have more tools that doesn't make the practical application of writing any easier but what it does do is give me more information and I make decisions with more discernment because I've had teachers who said to me it's okay to break the rules in in a narrative. It's okay to do something that the the quote unquote rule book tells you not to do, not but you have to understand the origin of where the rules come Absolutely. from. And I think so that when you break that. them, you break them with the intention of getting the outcome that you want to get. And the only way that you can do that and get the outcome that you want is to read the lineage. And that's hard, right? That's hard to hear as a young writer. And it's hard to hear as a young writer and reader of color, because yeah. I don't know that I necessarily want to read all these books mm-hmm. from these people of this identity that I feel may not relate to me, except for the fact that now I'm seeing the ways in which Black writers that I love took those classic writings and turned them on their heads and broke those rules and did those things with the intention of being like, I am going to break your system because I've read your system and I've learned your system. Which is not to say that every writer needs to do it. But again, knowledge is just a way to make a more informed decision. And now I'm gaining more knowledge. 
knowledge. And so I feel like I'm getting a lot of buying for my book. Exactly. Knowledge is power. So like we have the opposite backgrounds. I have a BA in English Lit. I didn't do a master's in creative writing. Maybe I should have, but it didn't happen. But I feel like that's one of the reasons why we jive so well when we talk. Yes, like we fill in each other's blanks. Yeah, we fill in where the other one is maybe not as good or we don't remember or we don't know. And I feel like it makes the in-depth conversation richer because doing a creative writing master's, I feel like is a big deal because I can't remember actually contemplating this idea and thinking, girl, are you mad? Because that's like hard, you know? And then I said, well, you know, maybe I could just slide on there with another master's in English lit and maybe get more specialized in a certain area of literature. And then it just like, no, girl, you know, you're not going to do that. That's so so funny. Writing came to me later on, you know, this idea of actually doing creative writing is something that has terrified me for a very long time. So when I had my accident years ago and I told my Achilles tendon and I was off for six months. Yeah. This is when I discovered writing. Reading has always been a love of my life. When I learned to read at four, to the life, there was nothing to say to me about that. But writing, creative writing, particularly. It is difficult because it is a craft. There is a science to it. What I think a lot of people don't understand is it's a lot like administrative grunt work. And, you know, I left administration being like, I'm going to be a writer only to find out that writing is freaking administration. And I was like, God damn it. What? Well, this is the thing. It's like we're, we're living in a period where everybody got a book and everybody writing more books. <laughs> But you want to write a book, but you want to write a book that is going to be put out into the world where 20 years later, you're not regretting you wrote that book. And that's what I I think the classics are really starting to like put into practice and reading these books. I'm like, okay, whether I like them or I don't like them, I understand why they've been classified yeah, as classic. That they have. And this is what every writer hopes for, right? Yeah. Something that's going to stand the test of time and resonate with readers a hundred years on. When I'm thinking of all of the books that we've read so far, the most impactful one, I think is still the age of innocence because I cannot believe how contemporary. Yeah, it's very contemporary. That read for me, mm-hmm. you know? And so I really love that book. And I think this one too is important because I am now about to wade into a genre Mm -hmm. that that you don't really gravitate towards naturally. And I'm going in, like I am going in. But I think you're going to like it. I mean, I feel like detective novels are, I think they're severely underrated. I think so too. They do highbrow writers and readers tend to look down on them. They do a lot of things. They just do a lot of things that even some contemporary novels and even some literary fiction novels do not do. Yes. Or should I say yes. not do well sometimes. But the the analysis of hu- humanity and the way people behave in certain situations and understanding what can come out of various situations is something that I think detective novels do really well. And yeah. as I, w- you know, I decided to start reading through the Easy Rollins series, what I like 
like about the detective novels in general is this idea of following this one character mm-hmm. who you like, even though they're flawed. And when they're about to do something and you're like, God, don't do that. You know, I love it when you can get completely into it, that you're for that person and you want them to make the right decision. Oh, and this even is when they I... make wrong decisions, you still, you still don't feel mad about it. You know, you're still wanting to protect that main character, even though they have some pretty awful ways every now and then. So this uh, is what I think genre writing does that gets them a bad rap with highbrow readers. And I'm going to include my snobby self in that. Yeah. Which is, like I said before, I come to a book with the expectation that the full rollout of the character is going to happen. Mm. I'm going to get all that depth within the confines of the novel. Yeah. And typically a detective novel tends to be series driven as does a fantasy novel. Yeah. And what I do is I get that rollout over five books, which actually is more realistic to life. Yeah. Yeah. Than what you would see in just the limitations of one novel. Right. And so because I don't get it in one novel, the snob in me would want to call that shoddy writing. Like you couldn't achieve it in one novel. And the fact of the matter is the detective story in a way is more true to life because the way the humans move through life and evolve through life is through a series of challenges and events that they learn from or that they don't learn from. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's more episodic and more series driven Mm. than a novel would be. The novel is the more false construct. Yeah. But I've been living in this feeling of, oh, well, because I got the depth of character in this one thing, it's like more real. But now suddenly I'm like, hold on. What am I talking about? (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like literally having like an internal like, oh girl, no. I've never fallen into that category. And it's because as a child, I definitely have. I absolutely adored reading Nancy Drew. And then I, when I got old, a little bit older, I started reading Agatha Christie. And then I really started looking at, okay, Hercule Poirot and... Um, oh my God. I don't know where I went wrong. Where did I take my turn? I don't know. Amazing. When you start reading those, you start seeing really the development of that detective over the series of books, however many there are. And I feel like that's something that is... It's just excellent. It's you want classic. to see what happens next and you want to see how each case is going to affect, you know, that detective. Now, there are many really famous ones out there. There's another one, the Canadian writer. I think she's Franco-Canadian. She has one that's really good because she has kind of turned over the genre a little bit. The faults of the detective come out more so than in things. Oh, like I like that. So I feel like, yeah, you definitely should read The Big Sleep. I read The Big Sleep and a bind up by a uh, Penguin Modern Classics, and it also has the long goodbye in it. So we both highly recommend checking yeah. it out if you're curious, especially if you're a writer. Or a young I think so writer. too. Stay tuned for our next episode where we're going to be discussing Light in August. Agnes, Southern Gothic. This is up my alley, so I really love this. It's a reread for me, so I'm I'm going back into the waters, as I say, of the Southern Gothic. So I've read Absalom, Absalom, and sound and the fury i'm like so excited for this yeah one. i think we're gonna have a lot to talk about concerning light in august so stay tuned for next week thank you bye, bye.